Good morning, friends, members, and visitors to Summit View Covenant Church. My name is Kent Wilcox. If you have not been here before or met me, I'll just tell you I am not a pastoral staff member. I'm not a paid religious professional. I'm an average guy just like you, unless you're above average, in which case you're above me, because I'm average. So continuing in our uh, series on relationships, last week we learned about looking inward into our own hearts. We saw what Jesus Christ told the Pharisees uh, in Matthew chapter 12. And we asked ourselves, what kind of tree do we want to be? That's the figure of speech that Jesus used. A good tree produces good fruit. We want to be a good tree, want to produce good fruit. That was easy. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day that God cares a lot more about what's inside our hearts than he cares about what's outside, and he really does not care much at all about mere external religion. So this week, then, I'm going to read through, I'm going to teach you a passage of Scripture from the book of Philippians that reverses our gaze. We're going to look outward now. So from a good heart, we talk about producing good fruit. I'll give you some basics on how to do that if you don't already know. So I'm going to read through Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 in a minute. The first I need to tell you, as I was reading this passage this week and preparing to preach, I got angry and annoyed, and I'll tell you why. Your English Bible translators, if you use an NIV and most other translations, use the word should a couple of times in this passage. And if you know me, you know one of the strange little quirks about me is that I never use the word should in conversation. I hate the word should. I refer to it as the S word. My wife and children think I'm crazy, but I'd rather gag than use the word should in a sentence. Here's why. The root of the English word should is the word shame. So if I look at my daughter and say, you know what, Liz, you really should clean up your room. What I'm saying to her is, you know what, Liz, the appropriate emotion for you to feel right now is shame because your room does not meet my standards. I advise you, those of you who are parenting children, don't use the should word too much, because what you're doing is talking about shame. There are other ways to encourage and motivate your children to pick up their room. You can do terrible things to them, like fine them. That was always effective with Lizzie. A fine of allowance would snap her into line pretty well, because she likes money. Okay? All kinds of cruel things you can do to your children. But don't use the shame word. That's not going to work. How about this? I could do this at work. I work in a factory. I have some people who report to me. I could say, Joe, you know, you really should get better quality. Is that going to help? No. That is a demotivator. It's insidious because if you use the S word, what you're doing is creating a standard that is unspoken and implied and makes nothing but trouble. For I work, we have many specifications like voltage and current and all that kind of stuff. It's appropriate for me to say, Joe, this thing needs to be 15 volts. It's 13 volts. You have to fix it. See where I'm coming from here? Shouldness is shameness. So when I read my NIV Bible and I see the word should in there, my little antennas go up and I'm in a foul mood because Paul is giving me a message through the Philippians that I don't like. Where's the shouldness? Am I failing to meet a standard? Am I no good? Am I not good enough? 
Am I not a good enough Christian? What's the deal? So I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to highlight some important words from the Greek New Testament for you. And we'll see about using this word, should. So here it is. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, notice, if, 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 then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. There's a then. If I remember my logic correctly, if then is a syllogism, is that right? If something is true, then this is true? I think that's right. That was like 30 years ago. So here you have if, 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 then. This is very powerful. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Then he's going to describe the attitude of Christ Jesus. I'll read this for you. I think we're going to spend more time on this later in the service. And in your New Testament, it's indented. It means it's like a poem or a song or a verse. Okay, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's going on here? First, some important words from the Greek Bible. In verse 1, you see the words compassion, and you see tenderness, all right? Compassion is a word you've heard me talk about before. It's a funny one in Greek. It's the word splankna, splankna. That's cocktail party conversation for you if you want to pull it out. Splankna. It means innards or guts or, in the King James, bowels. But we don't use that bowel word in our society. It's your inner person. Sometimes we translate that heart, close enough. This one is translated compassion, okay? Your splankna. It's the seat to the Greek people of emotion. Tenderness is a funny word in Greek. It's oiktirmos. But here it's plural. It's oiktirmoi. That's called a plural of emphasis. So it's tendernesses, if you put it in literal English, which we don't do. Tendernesses, that means it's big tender, pity, mercy, used in the plural to emphasize this point. Innards of compassion and big tenderness. In verse 2, Paul uses the word to make complete. He's writing from prison. He says, Philippians, make my joy complete. That word means to fulfill or to bring to completion. So there's nothing remaining. And then the big one. He uses this word twice in verse 2 and once in verse 5. Phroneo. It means to be like-minded, one in purpose, to be in agreement, or to form or hold the same opinion. And that's the example of Jesus Christ. Paul says we need to have the same opinion that Jesus Christ had. Thoughts, 
attitudes working out the same way Jesus Christ did. Now, there's your standard. All right, so the summary of this passage from the Greek New Testament is this. We're commanded by Paul, speaking for God, using the example of Jesus Christ, to have the same opinion about service to other people and ministry in people's lives as Jesus Christ had there. All right? This is a command to think and act and believe and work out like Jesus. Impossible? No. I'll tell you why. The way this is written in Greek, you're going to love this. These are class two conditional subjunctive clauses. You didn't know that before you came in this morning, did you? This is what I get paid for, okay? Here's how they're used. This is the mood of command, shouldness, oughtness, and rightness. Greek authors use subjunctive when they're saying this is what we all should do. I think right now a lot of you don't like me, and that's okay. I told a few close friends that by the time I'm done today, I'll probably have no friends left in the church, but that's okay. Just don't beat me up in the parking lot. That is illegal. We have have police officers here in the congregation. Don't be beating on me, all right? So here's the deal. See, my problem goes away, right? I don't like reading the word should because that's someone laying their moral thing on me. But guess what? God gets to do that. God gets to create moral standards. And he gets to say to you and me, guys, here's what you should be doing. Look at my son, Jesus Christ. Imitate him as well as you can. That's why our English translators use the word should. Though I don't like it, it's right. It's the right thing to do. Take a look. Do you see anyone in here, uh, anything Paul wrote? Think this way unless you have a problem. Think this way if you're smart enough. Think this way if you're good and moral and righteous enough. Nope, it's directed at all the Philippians and thereby to all of us. Nobody's off the hook. We're all commanded to service and ministry. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I are commanded to service and ministry. The overall theme of this passage is unity in service. Now, we Christians talk a lot about unity. Let's have unity. Let's be united. Let's have togetherness. Let's have community. Yada, yada, yada. What does that mean? In this passage, unity in service is having the same attitudes, beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors about what's important. There. There's a summary. I drew out some principles for you. There are more, but these you can take home. It's either a program or a bulletin. Uh, To me, it's like a scorecard. You can just keep score here on that, all right? First of all, according to Paul, we need to think the same way about service. That's not to say we think the same thoughts, okay? This is to say that our values on service need to line up together. Let me explain this to you. This pokes a big hole in a common stereotype people have about Christians, The idea that all of us, you know, middle-class, up-and-coming, suburban knuckleheads are all cardboard cutouts of each other. What Paul is commanding the Philippians to do is have the same attitudes towards service. But you don't all have to think the same. It would be possible for my friend Mark Miles and I to disagree on who to vote for for president. But we need to think the same about service. My friend Andy has different ministry gifts than I have. That's okay. We need to think the same about the charge to serve God. My friend Ryan over there drives a nicer car than I do. 
It's okay. We don't have to drive the same cars, like the same movies, eat the same vegetarian food. I'm a meat guy. So we don't all have to share the same thoughts, but we share the same conviction of service and ministry. God commands followers of Jesus Christ to serve other people. You and I don't like that. We grew up in the land of the free and the home of the brave where we don't like being told what to do. I've visited some countries in Europe where by tradition they are told what to do. They read this stuff and say, yeah, sure, of course, I get it. We don't get this very well. The fact is, God commands us to ministry. Now, here's a funny word. Do you ever describe yourself as a minister? Of course not. That means you wear robes and you work in a church for a living. No, that's wrong. Each of us is a minister of the gospel of Christ to other people. Some people are pastors, some are missionaries, other kind of religious professional people. But all of us are called to be ministers. Next time someone asks you about yourself, feel free to say, yes, hi, I'm Joe Blow and I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd be right. We need to think like Jesus. Okay? This is a moral imperative that comes from God. And God is the standard of morality. Sorry if you don't like it. But in John, we get a little insight into how this works. Jesus, in talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who I think might have become a believer later on, said to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was talking about himself. Jesus followed the command of his Father. I know that was hard for him. He could have said, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to save the world. Find somebody else. Nope, not doing it. But he didn't. He followed the Father's moral imperative. So do we. Christ is our example. There's a couple more. If you keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, read about two guys named Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul puts their stories in as examples to the Philippians of people who followed the example of Jesus Christ. Read that on your own. And also, at the end, Jesus has been exalted by God the Father and will continue to be. And by example of following Jesus, so will we be exalted and raised up. What does that mean? I'll explain that in a minute. Okay. There's the words. There's the principles. Let me give you some applications here. I won't keep you long, and we'll finish up. And I have to warn you, I personally feel very strongly about this. So if I burst into flames, somebody please hose me down. Okay, unity of serving other people is an expected model for Christians. It's the norm. It's the thing we do. It's the thing we're here for. Service. Where is that? One of the Sunday school teachers caught me this morning, and she made me promise to emphasize this, so I will. Not just in our church. I'm not going to give you a commercial to serve in our church. As chairman of the church, that's my job, so there, I did it. You know what? If you don't like our church... Find one you like and go serve there. If you don't want to serve in a church, find somebody else and serve him or her. How about this? If you're fluent in another language, why don't you find one person for whom English is a second language and you teach him or her how to read, write, and speak English better? That's a huge act of service to a person who might be struggling with English as a language. And that person, under your influence, can change our community. That is service in the name of Jesus Christ. 
If you don't want to do that, find someone who's hungry. Buy them a burger at McDonald's. Well, make them a healthy meal. If you don't want to do that, hand out coffee to street people. Serve, serve, okay? We need to be together in desiring this. We may not all agree with each other on the details. In fact, you may find yourself serving Christ with another Christian that you don't even like very much. It's okay. You don't have to live with them. Just serve with them. After a period of serving Christ together, you might find you like each other. I lived through that myself. See, we don't need to be cardboard cutouts of each other. We've got to be united in serving our Lord Jesus Christ. We serve people, and that pleases God. And let me urge you this, if you find me respectable and trustworthy at all, if you're not serving now, please get started. See, we all go through seasons of life. We may have a new marriage, a new baby, a new job, a new home, a new health problem to deal with. I understand that. I am old and wise, and I've been through this stuff myself. If I can handle it, you can handle it. I've worked for 25 years. I've been married for 22. I got girls in college. I have a hard job as a factory worker. Through the gifts God has given to me, I can make the time to serve Jesus Christ. Oh, and I've done graduate school. That excuse won't work either. Please understand, I'm not telling you that you should be like me. I just hate to say this stuff. Be yourself. Make the time to serve. I was thinking about this the other day, and there's a scene in my favorite Star Trek movie, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. You know all about this one. It's right at the very end. Captain Kirk and the Enterprise are getting blown to bits by the cloaked Klingon bird of prey. I know you know this scene. Halfway across the galaxy, Commander Sulu in his starship, I think it's the Excalibur, Excelsior, thank you. It's a galaxy-class starship. Thank you. Excelsior. We reach, okay? Okay. I'm almost done, I promise. And he's going so fast the ship is shaking. And Sulu says, faster, faster. And the engineering officer says, we can't go any faster. We'll fly apart. And Sulu says, then fly her apart. Part of me feels like this about service, and you don't have to be like me because I'm crazy and driven at times. Part of me feels like time is ticking and there's something I can do. I've got to do it even if the engines come off. Don't be like me because that's selfish. Be yourself. Find a place to serve and serve like your engines are going to come off. Finally, the effort of service is worth it. It really is. I put the reference in your bulletin and I'll read it. At the height of Jesus' public ministry to his disciples, he had a conversation with a young, wealthy guy. and He sent him away disappointed, saying, Look, dude, your money does not earn your way into heaven. And in Jesus' culture, that was a common opinion. So after he went away, Peter said, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, and I'll say it to you in closing, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that's the twelve apostles, and that's not us. But wait. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, it's pretty much anything you can imagine, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Serving Christ has paid me joy.
and someday when I kick the bucket and he comes back, I'm going to get something else. And I don't know what it is, but I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. So here's the last thing I'd like to leave you with today. Try to remember this 24 hours from now. Lunchtime, Monday, at work. Question. Am I, fill in your name, serving the Lord Jesus? What will I do? When will I get started? Thank you.